Welcome to the Lean Blog Podcast. Visit our website at www.leanblog.org. Now, here's your host, Mark Graben. Hi, this is Mark Graben. Welcome to episode 207 of the podcast for August 28th, 2014. Uh, today is uh, part two of a, a rather lengthy conversation that I had with uh, Chris Jerry from the Emily Jerry Foundation. Um, part one was in episode 203. We talked about the the tragedy, the preventable medical error that claimed the life of his young daughter, Emily. And uh, if, if you haven't heard that part, um, I recommend going to leanblog.org slash 203 um, to, to listen his um, account of what happened and his reactions to it. In part two here, we're going to talk about more of what happened afterwards, including um, the passing of something called Emily's Law in Ohio that um, sets better standards for uh, pharmacy tech um, certification. We talk about uh, Chris meeting that pharmacist, Eric Kropp, face to face for the first time and, and some of the lessons learned about systems thinking, um, everybody being uh, fallible because we're human, um, the problem with you know, demonizing individuals who are involved in errors like this. And we'll, we'll hear some of Chris's thoughts about uh, the progress that we're making or not making in this patient safety battle. Um, so if you'd like to see links to um, the foundation website, Emily's Law, some videos uh, that Chris mentions in the podcast, go to leanblog.org slash 207 and you can find all of that there. Thanks for joining us. Because I, I, mean, I, I think a, a key of you know this the systemic view is is to look and say, well, would a different pharmacist not named Eric Crop, who by luck of the draw would have happened to have been working that day, right. also seen that bag, also signed off, also ended up in the same situation? Probably, probably, right? I mean, he, yes. he didn't yeah. have superhuman abilities to look at that bag and see the concentration of saline. It's just precisely right. Um, Precisely. And, you know, I I, I do agree completely, Mark, because, you know, I've applied uh, those types of of scenarios as well in my mind. And I I really do believe that even if you were able to gather up, you know, six, ten of the, the, you know, the the leading rock star pharmacists at that given point. Uh, around the nation, put any one of those in that same environment that day, and they would have made the same decision to to initial that bag. And um, you know, so I was given the the opportunity, uh, Mark. Um, I would I I had been going through a a few years after. Um, Emily had passed. I had been going through a a horrible, horrible uh, divorce, and I know that they all are. But uh, my former wife and I were separated, and I was just, you know, I wanted to persevere with with respect to my um, patient safety advocacy efforts and with the establishment of the Emily Jerry Foundation. So as I'm doing this, the, doing this, uh, this work to establish the foundation and just try to gather as much knowledge as I could about patient safety and preventing uh, these types of, of horrible tragedies like what occurred with my daughter from happening to any, anyone else, 
you know, I was going through a horrible stage of the grieving process, even though I had, I think it was also miraculous, uh, Mark, that, that, and I say this all the time, you know, a lot of people ask me, well, Chris, when you were standing on that parking garage, weren't you just mad as hell at the caregivers? Weren't you mad as hell mm-hmm. at, at, at the facility where it happened? The honest answer to that is no. I was emotionally traumatized. I always will be. I continue to be. Um, as would anybody. But I, at no point, and like I said, it, it truly is a miracle that I skipped over what I believe is, I think it's like the second phase of the natural five steps of grieving, mm-hmm. which is anger. And I think the reason I wasn't angry was because of the way that the caregivers had taken care, wonderful care of my daughter. And because effectively, and what gets lost in this tragic story with Emily quite often is the fact that modern day medicine cured my little girl of a grapefruit sized mass in her abdomen. Mm-hmm. Cured her. We can't, none of us can forget that. And that's why I still to this day have the utmost respect for modern day medicine, why, why I think we live in such an exciting time in medicine uh, today is because we're, we're now curing various forms of cancer and, and different diseases that just 10 years ago would have been terminal, would have been a, an immediate death sentence. Right. We now have documented cases of people overcoming even stage four cancer of different types. Yeah. Good friend of mine uh, who, who's in that camp and is a, a patient advocate for you know for for you know different issues. But you're right; there there are amazing things that happen, and at the same time, so many just I mean you know just purely just just preventable head shaking, anger inducing, sadness inducing um, errors that that are occurring each and every day, multiple multiple times a day. Um, I mean, I think you know. Uh, it, it's not meant at all to, you know, diminish the the, the first victim and right your your loss and and your you know Emily's life being stolen from her and and her being stolen from you and the rest of her family. But you know to to think about what's fair for those who are quote unquote involved in the incident and that, that might just sound like oh you know a passive phrase you know passive voice you know but yeah it's it's probably more accurate than saying. The person who screwed up, the person who was involved in that error, what? and and what's fair for them, and 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 Eric Crop. I don't know how much you want to talk about the trial or, or the aftermath, well, but you know what of what happened with Eric. Um, well, my 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 point there, uh, Mark, and and multiple things come to mind, but the biggest thing is, I, what was most important to me was I knew I couldn't bring my little girl back. However, I still feel. Um, and I'm very outspoken about it, but I still believe that little Emily is, is, is still with me. She's not just my guardian angel. She's everyone else's. My point is in, 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 in expounding on, on everything I, I just aforementioned was the fact that, that I knew right from that point, the day we took Emily off of life support, that I wanted to be, uh, engaged in being a part of the solution to preventing it from happening to others. Okay. So immediately after root cause analysis, Mark, I 
began researching and doing my homework about what did it, what did you need to do to become a pharmacy technician in the state of Ohio? At that time, the only requirement in 2006 to become a patient, uh, to become a pharmacy technician and become and start routinely compounding IV medications, which by the way, most of our public doesn't is not aware that in all of our nation's medical facilities, pharmacy technicians compound virtually all and those words are not sensationalized at all. Right. You ask any any pharmacist that's been in clinical pharmacy who compounds virtually all IV medications, like they will tell you a, a, a pharmacy technician. The only requirement to become a pharmacy technician in 2006 in Ohio was that you had your GED. The barber cutting my hair in 2006 had to have their cosmetology license right. displayed next to the barber chair mm -hmm. and show before they could legally cut my hair that they had six months, six to 12 <laughs> months, I forget what it is, yeah. of, of full-blown cosmetology school and that they passed all their tests before they could legally cut my hair. Yet somebody that's compounding IV meds going into my children's circulatory systems directly. Wow. They just had to have their GED. I mean, and we've all had bad haircuts. It grows back. Exactly. I mean, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And and so many times, you know, the, the, we as citizens and as patients, we don't understand these underlying issues. Right. Many of many of uh, Emily's uh, specialists uh, at her facility were not aware. You know, they'd been there for. Some of them had been there for 20 or 30 years as uh, practicing physicians, probably writing scripts for, I imagine, thousands of IV meds for their patients. They had no idea that pharmacy technicians compound virtually all IV meds. So I'm proud to say I was able to help get Emily's law passed in uh, January of 2009 for the state of Ohio. And I've continued on uh, with uh, on a national basis, because it varies on a state-by-state -state basis, um, I, I have carried on this work with our uh, the Emily Jerry Foundation's Pharmacy Technician Initiative and, and Scorecard um, as well. Um, I know I'm skipping around here a little bit, Mark, but um, going back to uh, what had happened with Eric Kropp, mm -hmm. um, my former... Uh, wife and I had been separated and all of a sudden I started getting calls from the news media requesting interviews with me and I said what's this what's this about and they immediately said well this is about weren't you aware that your former wife is pursuing a criminal conviction hmm. against the pharmacist that was involved in your daughter's death and I said no I wasn't aware of this and at that point in my life Mark um, even though I had skipped over that angry phase of the grieving process, part of my grieving process, which it, it varies for every individual, um, you know, I used to be more embarrassed about it than I am now, but I mean, I was definitely for a few years, I was going through my, uh, what I refer to as my Lindsay Lohan slash Big Lebowski days, you know, kind of living life a little too wild and not really caring too much, but I was establishing this foundation. 
and as I'm working through all these things, my my response to the news media requesting the interviews was to decline them. Yeah. And that's something that I've apologized actually to Eric for. Uh because I think it's important for our listeners to hear this because you know, we all think about things how how would I have done things differently during that time? I would have done a lot of things differently, but one of the key ones I would have that I I regret and was very apologetic to Eric for was that I would I I would have been there by his side during the court proceedings, uh, mm-hmm. helping to defend him. And I watched it unfold instead um, in the news media, and I see this guy being vilified for what had happened in my daughter's death, and and my solution was to just bow out of the media spotlight, decline the interviews, so on mm-hmm. and so on. So as I, I learned more and I'm following his case, you know, he was convicted um, of uh, involuntary manslaughter, but the initial charges were he was being brought up on like reckless homicide and yeah. all these horrible things. Um he did receive a criminal conviction and was sent to jail for what had happened with Emily. Uh, he was sentenced to six months, um, in, in County jail and then, uh, six months of house arrest. He had his pharmacy, his license to practice pharmacy permanently revoked. And I started to begin, uh, right before he was released from jail, I, I had, had told my, my colleagues and the people that I work with in the patient safety communities, started telling them, you know, when I was speaking with them one-on-one, Mark, that, that I would really like the opportunity to be able to come out and publicly forgive Eric for what happened to my daughter, to set the record straight so that we as a society, when these horrible things happen, and we determine they're not due to reckless the reckless practice of medicine that we learn from them and we modify the systems. And then also because I don't believe if you have any deep seated anger or resentment and animosity, I think that just, those are things that are negative to the human condition. And I think it causes us to deteriorate from the inside out. Hmm. So it's partially for my healing process as well. And, um, Eric and I were given that opportunity uh, in May of 2011 for a Discovery Channel patient safety segment called Surfing the Healthcare Tsunami. And you can watch that on, on the Emily Jerry Foundation's website, that clip. Okay, I'll, I'll make sure we, we'll, we'll link to that on the page for this okay. episode, yeah. And, um, and that was a very uh, pivotal moment. Eric and I were brought together for the very first time since Emily's death. And we were able to look one another in the eye. And, and, and I was, I felt like I had done my job because I was able to set that record straight, Mark, and get people, get society when these tragic events occur and root cause analysis determines it's not due to a result of reckless, the reckless practice of medicine so that we can all learn from them and modify those systems instead of just going out and lynching an individual 
mm-hmm. for them and, and letting the systems go. Because then I think when that happens, when people like Eric go to jail and nobody speaks out, then I think that it's natural, again, part of human nature, for maybe the upper level C-suite people in our nation's medical facilities and, and the people that are responsible as administrators for signing checks for vital pieces of uh, patient safety technology and equipment that needs to be implemented. They probably think to themselves, Mark, when they, they get a, a purchase request for a half a million dollars, let's say, for an automatic IV compounder that's going to make their facility safer. I think that that, that these administrators might th- think to themselves, well, geez, you know, times are kind of hard right now economically. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe we can put off this $500,000 expenditure till next year or till next season. Uh, because, you know, in the back of their minds, they think to themselves, well, we have the culprit we have that's responsible for this horrible tragedy that occurred. And they're rotting in jail anyway. So why do we need to spend the extra money? Hmm. Well, it's easier to, to say here, here's what the cost of that technology would be than it is to say the cost of not having it. Well, the risk is someone will make a mistake. Well, we have careful people. Right. Well, we'll tell them to not make mistakes. Um, but that's ignoring human factors and yes. human fallibility. Um, yes. Yeah. And the fact that the fact that Mark, uh, to speak to what you're saying right now, uh, that the fact that, you know, we're all fallible, we're all capable of making a mistake. I mean, even if you were the, you know, let's just take a, a hypothetical here, Mark, even if you were a, a rock star uh, cardiac surgeon, you graduate top of your class from Harvard Medical School, you've been practicing for 10, 15 years without any significant error that you're aware of reaching the patient, you've been responsible for saving countless lives through your, your stellar procedures. Fact of the matter is, you know, God made us all fallible. We're all capable of making a very human error, having an oversight. There's only, you know, so much any human mind can can um, endure. And statistically, chances are pretty good that you being this hypothetical rock star uh, cardiac surgeon, uh, you know, chances are you're still, no matter how many lives you save, chances are during the course of your career, Pure statistics and, and objective analysis is probably going to say that you're going to have a significant error that reaches or and or proves to be lethal to a patient of yours. So let's, you know, your work is much like mine in that respect, Mark. I'm trying to get everyone to rally behind those basic core thoughts. Right, right. And so tell us, I mean, you know, through... The Emily Jerry Foundation, you're doing a lot of work to, to raise awareness and, and to rally people behind um, these issues and, and, and I might even say the right way to, to try to improve patient safety and healthcare quality. What, what are some of the main things that, that you're communicating and, and advocating for um, to, to, to help solve this? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm advocating for, you know, I think you hit the nail on the head, Mark, uh, primarily for changes in attitudes and opinions across the nation, changing uh, the underlying culture of medicine, the negative aspects. I often tell people, um, you know, 
if I were allowed it for, for me as a guy and as an ind- individual, uh, to have any, you know, any job, uh, I wanted in the world because I love, I I've always loved, uh, ever since I was a little boy, I've loved, uh, sports cars. It would be to own a sports car manufacturing concern. You know, that the, uh, a, a sports car manufacturing concern that, that produces very, uh, state of the art, um, uh, you know, high technology sports cars that are capable of driving at a very, very high speed and keeping the occupants safe in that vehicle while they're driving at that very high speed. Okay. Now, if I were the owner of this hypothetical concern, I certainly wouldn't allow my design engineers, nor do I think you would either, Mark, uh, to allow your design engineers to put cheap tires on that vehicle that would compromise those those occupants' safety, correct? Uh, we probably would not even allow them to put mediocre tires on a car like that, right? Um, and, 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 you know, I kind of view modern-day medicine on a, a global basis, and especially here in the United States, in that same way. I believe that we have the high-performance sports car built today. We have that today. Now what we need to focus on as a society and as, uh, you know, the medical community trying to get around this, this huge issue of, of preventable medical errors and loss of life, what we need to focus on is the tires. Yeah. And I know that's a little bit of a corny analogy, but I think mm-hmm. it's a good one that kind of mm-hmm. drives the points home uh, pretty well. Well, yeah, I mean, it's not enough to just have a great engine and a beautiful design and a great paint job and comfortable seats and all the safety gear inside the, all these elements of the system have to fit together. And, you know, I think of, you know, analogies to the auto industry. Um, I mean, you gosh, you know, you see what's in the news, whether it was allegations, um, thrown at Toyota, more recent, um, recalls and congressional hearings with, with general motors and, and design problems with small cars and ignition switches and, you know, the, the, the range, the number of deaths, um, Again, not to diminish in any one of these accidents, of course, um, 13 to 40 deaths. But, you know, the, these are all out in public and there, there are police reports and, and you know, the, it, it's a problem that really, I mean, you know, a company could move slowly and drag its feet in responding and the government regulators might be slow. But ultimately, I mean, these problems occur out in the open where problems right. in hospitals where it's it's not 14 to 40, it's 140,000 to 400,000, depending on which estimate, but it's all very, um, it's, 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 it's private, it's one at a time. Um, and, and it's just, uh, I think that that's one of the things that gets in the way of improvement is this lack of public understanding, this lack of awareness, this lack of pressure. There certainly aren't congressional hearings all the time, hauling healthcare CEOs in to explain why, why so many people are being hurt and killed by preventable errors. It just well, doesn't happen. Right. And I, I, I think the significant points there are, are um, you know, increasing public awareness of all these, all of these things. I didn't discover them until after the fact, really. Okay. I really wasn't aware of these things. Now that I'm submersed in it, though, I, you know, I even see it to speak to what you're saying, Mark, um, on the other side of things, you know, for if we're talking about, you know, using analogies from, you know, the auto industry, especially, 
you know, I think modern day medicine can, can, can be compared to the auto industry in, let's say, the early 70s, late 60s. And I'll tell you why. Um, during, during the early 70s, when I was, a, a, you know, even though I'm an old guy and I'm going to be dating myself now, Mark, but that's okay. <laughs> um, I'll never forget. My mother had uh, what I thought was a really, as a little boy, I thought it was the, like the coolest bomb car out there. She had a, one of these old Corvairs. I don't know if you're familiar with that car. Yeah, well, I've, I've heard of it and the Ralph, was this the Ralph Nader Car well, made, made well, famous by by this is this is kind of one of them okay. but i always i always thought this was a cool car and 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 it, it's ironic that you just brought off ralph's name because i'm i'm about to okay sorry uh, no no don't apologize I mean, at all this just tells me you and i are on the same same way <laughs> um so you know i always thought to myself boy my mom has got the coolest car and i'm so proud you know she's dropping me off at little league baseball and all the you know all the other boys are looking at this cool red Corvair that I'm getting dropped off in. I always wondered, as much as I loved that car, Mark, even as a little boy, I wondered to myself, why aren't there any seatbelts like there are in Daddy's car? <laughs> yeah. Okay? Mm. I thought about this the whole time. And then, lo and behold, you know, now that I've been submersed in patient safety now, I, I'm drawing analogies back to those times because... You know, we hear about people like Ralph Nader, who in the early 70s uh, was a big proponent of, you know, of, of safety with respect to automobiles and where, how much safer, how many lives would be saved if, if, if the car manufacturers took existing technology that they already had designed in terms of seatbelts and what have you. And in fact, I'll expound on the what have you. I've even heard rumors, Mark, and maybe you can share with me if this is true or not, that there were a few car manufacturers that had actually designed air, working airbag prototypes that worked in the early to mid-70s at that time. My point is, is this technology existed and had been designed at least for seatbelts. But as I understand history, the car manufacturers were reluctant to put the seatbelts in there because they were fearful that 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 if you know word got out that that just driving a car was an unsafe proposition, that fewer people would 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 purchase their their vehicles if they thought that hey we promote this fact. And we're going to be showing that our products are dangerous and what have you. Yeah, I, I, I could probably imagine that was the case. I, I don't know the, the details on you know, the, the history of development of airbags, but I do remember being exposed even in the, the mid 90s, uh, you know, well, early 93, um, doing a, a summer engineering internship with a major automaker. And we were looking at um, you know, different types of glass for vehicles and, and generally automotive glasses engineered to be pretty safe um, compared right. to your average pane of glass um, in terms of not having big shards they're going to cut you and it's pretty well engineered as far as glass go but goes but they, they were looking at um, you know further advances that would have been you know addition you know incrementally safer and I know there were discussions of saying well if we put that product in our luxury cars 
the, right. the more expensive ones where we can absorb that cost, you know, and then we're not putting it in all the vehicles. Oh my gosh, that opens us up to liability. And, and I, I mean, I can imagine there's discussions like that if the technology oh, yeah. wasn't perfect or they didn't put it in everywhere or, um, you know, even like you said, creating a perception that driving a vehicle at 55 miles an hour even um, is, is you know, has its safety risks, which I think, my gosh, we all would recognize that. But I mean, I, I guess I can appreciate some of that reticence to, to be forthcoming about um, trying new things. Well, yes. And and see, that's that's kind of where I see, you know, I, I think analogies can be drawn between the auto, uh, automotive industry and to modern day medicine right now. Uh, I think there's a lot of analogy, good analogies that can be drawn from that because here we have the manufacturers in the in the early to mid uh, 70s being nervous or reluctant to truly open up and and I guess for lack of a better word be truly transparent with the general public about you know what an inherently you know dangerous prospect it really was for all of us to drive to the grocery store a couple miles away. You know, it's it's it was a pretty dangerous proposition at that time. But bottom line is, is we had the solutions, those being at least the seatbelts. OK, and now here, modern day flash forward and we find that in the marketing, I, I think I just saw a, I think it was a Subaru commercial. Where they're showing the remnants of this car on the back of a flatbed that that has has just been totally mutilated, and you're wondering to yourself, as the viewer, you're thinking to yourself, what ha could have happened to those occupants? And here they're boasting about their safety features in the, uh, I believe, the Subaru, saying, uh, saying, hey, we're one of the safest vehicles. We put so much uh, money and, and, and time into designing these things with associated with our airbags, our seatbelts, um, our, our, uh, all of their, their, uh, their automated safety equipment. And now they're conveying that message and they're being honest and forthright with 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 uh, people and people are now finding that that's a reason that they want to buy those Subaru vehicles. Right. Well, and you you look at um, you know the national you've got um, National Highway Traffic Safety Board Administration. Yes. I, I'm getting the different acronyms mid afternoon. I need a cup of coffee. But you've got these you know different <laughs> federal regulatory groups and they're somewhat standardized and federally regulated. Um, safety standards and crash tests and and reports that are done not just by the federal government but by consumer reports and other independent groups you know in healthcare you've got you've got some groups like leapfrog group and others that try to do you know um, patient safety grades and scorecards um, but you know there's there's really not a similar federal effort that we would have for um, aviation safety Right. Uh, other types of transportation safety. I, you know, I've seen articles where, where Lucian Leap, one of the you know fathers of the patient safety movement, is advocating for something that would be similar to an FAA yes. um, for for healthcare. That that you know we can point to in, uh, examples, not just lean manufacturing, but we can point to other industries, other known best practices for that that take into account human factors, um, yes. human nature, and dynamics that that have led. To such um, dramatic increases in, say, aviation safety, not Correct. to mention auto safety. So, you know, there's a lot of things out there. That I think we know 
what to do, but there's not the, the, the public or political or even, you know, management support within a lot of organizations to, to kind of honestly admit first off, here's a, here's a problem, here's the scale of it. Um, yeah, I think it's, it's pretty rare. I mean, I've run across a few hospital CEOs that will talk bluntly to their employees about, you know, well, how many patients do we plan on harming this week? Or, right. you know, I mean, obviously they're not wanting to, but to talk about, well, if, you know, if, we, if we're not improving processes, um, statistics would show we are going to harm people this week through medication errors and other types of preventable problems. So, you know, um, you know, people would say in, in kind of the Toyota circles, um, you know, first you've got to define the problem or if you're trying to say we don't have any problems that saying, you know, as the saying goes, no problems is a problem. No you problems know, uh, is. Oh, that's that is. Those are words of whiz, wisdom, Mark, without a doubt. Without a doubt, because that's that's the whole point that I'm trying to get to is the fact that, you know, if we continue historically, when tragedies like what happened with my daughter Emily happen, if if that would have happened 20 years ago, it probably would have been brushed under the rug, you know, and forgotten because it's an embarrassment to the institution where it happens. It's human nature to try and compartmentalize things that are horribly traumatic and and upsetting for us emotionally on everybody involved. Well, I, I would have been worried about that occurring eight years ago or even today, like you said, you know, things being kind of covered up or not being yes. brushed under the rug and at. not and 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 then what happens again, another uh, form of human nature is 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 the fact to, that we all try to when we have a when we face a horrific problem or situation that needs a solution we you know isn't it kind of human nature again at least for a nanosecond or two mark to try to minimize that problem at hand uh say oh this isn't that big of a deal or to say, well, we'll, we'll just we'll blame somebody and, and punish you... them and problem solve. But, and, I, and I think that's where I think part of the discussion with the public needs to not just and, and certainly not to be alarmist, but to say, look, there are risks of going to the hospital for even the most routine procedure um, yes. to be aware of those risks. But at the same time, being really careful, like you did at the very beginning of our discussion here, not demonizing the individuals and right. saying, yeah, well, yeah, oh, don't go to the hospital because some because some idiot nurse or stupid doctor is going to hurt you well no that's not it at all it's Precisely. um you know it's it's about being aware of of systems and um i, I know you've met laura townsend from yes. uh, the louise bats patient safety foundation yes. and you know they have a, an excellent guidebook that that i share with anyone i know that is going to be going in for um a surgical procedure and i know people have found the guidebook incredibly helpful because it points out here are the questions you need to ask. And it does so in a very kind of, I think, matter of fact, non-alarmist way. Right. Um, but but other, you know, otherwise, people are going to discover th these things on their own. And so it's better to have a little bit of advanced warning of knowing what you need to keep track of and questions you need to ask. And in an ideal world, it wouldn't have to be that way. But if it was you or me or, or, or my my family, I, I would certainly be looking out for them. And my wife and I have kind of have this deal and we chuck in on this every once in a while. OK, if I'm hospitalized, I need you or someone to be there with me and vice versa. Right. You know, not to be obnoxious to anybody or not to be disrespectful, but just to be monitoring and overseeing things, even though you're not a medical expert, um, which which puts patients and families in a bad position. 
you know, I think I think being aware and, and having at least some key questions um, well, can really help put luck on your side a bit. Well, and again, to, you know, to understand what the core issues are at hand um, before going in for treatment. And then subsequently, and this is where I, I, I really try and guide people in the general public that are, are working, you know, that are, are, I guess, not working, but concerned about, you know, their care or their loved one's care. And that is, I always try to stress to them the importance of patient and family engagement in your health care. We all need to be, you know, involved. You do need to be knowledgeable about things like hospital-acquired infections. I think there's many people that don't even understand they're very fearful of hospital-acquired infections because we hear about how the news media sensationalizes things mm-hmm. any chance they get. They're very fearful of going in for a procedure because they hear about how many people are dying from hospital-acquired infections. But many people are not cognizant of the fact that one of the biggest ways that in healthcare that we can reduce hospital-acquired infections, believe it or not, and it's, it's true, this is objective fact, and not my opinion, and I know you'll support me on this, Mark, is through uh, CDC hand-washing methods in in the medical facilities. So many people in the public aren't aware that, you know, when they have multiple specialists coming in to see them during the course of their stay for any procedure, you know, you have three, four, five uh, different types of physicians coming in to see you and treat you, you see one of them walk in and not wash their hands, you're well within your rights as a patient to very politely and tactfully, though, say to that, uh, that uh, physician or that nurse, you know, hey, if, if you're going to give me an examination, please wash your hands for me. You know, people are kind of afraid to speak up, but I want them they're not going to know to speak up unless they know that that's where the, you know, the root of the, the problem is, I guess. Just... So do you feel like maybe as, as we'll maybe, you know, start, start to wrap up here. I mean, there, there, there's so much we could talk about and I, I, I would encourage listeners if, if you've got questions or other things you would want um, Chris to explore here, we, we can, uh, I think we had kind of agreement up front that we can maybe do another um, discussion, but um, yes. you know, maybe as, as we start to wrap up, um, one, one question I wanted to ask was, you know, whether you feel like there's progress being made in in the time that you've been involved in in this movement and with the foundation. Um, how, how much progress do you feel like um, that is, is being made right now? I feel, even though you know the numbers, the sheer numbers, Mark, which you know I've got that side of my brain, which is is more analytical about these things. Um, you know, I look at the numbers being so astounding at over 440,000 lives a year. Um, and to answer that question directly, I do feel that uh, there are some incredible changes happening. I do. And I, you know, my whole, much of my work is spent, as you know, Mark, um, going in and speaking at different medical facilities around the nation and spending time with them and their quality teams, their upper-level C-suite people, their boards of trustees, all of their caregivers. I'm seeing these changes in attitudes and opinions are, are, are most prevalent. Um, you know, I'm seeing those changes occur. 
in the way that they're viewing these things as they relate to our whole interview we've had today. All of those topics we covered today, and I know we covered a lot of them, I'm seeing the upper level, as I'm sure you are too, and I'm not, I don't mean to put words in your mouth um, by any means, but I, I'm sure you'll agree that many of the presidents and CEOs that we, you and I speak with, especially on a one-on-one -on -one basis, I think they're starting to show a, a change in, in, in how they understand and perceive you know, the, the, the vital issue of preventable medical errors. You know, I think I think when I first started, I think many of them used to think, oh, you know, Chris, this horrible story of Emily and what happened to her could never, you know, they think to themselves, this could never happen at our facility. We're top notch. And now today, if I take a snapshot from today, Mark, I believe that many of them are, are, are coming to the realization that what's changed now is, is that they realize that, hey, chances are that a horrible, awful, unimaginable tragedy like what happened with Emily could and, and may very likely happen at our facility. So we need to implement the safeguards. We need to modify our internal systems and processes and protocols so that these things don't happen. We need to be yeah. proactive about it rather than just ignoring it. Yeah, I mean, I think I think you know that there has been some change in thinking. Um, there's there's some organizations that are I think absolutely top notch, and, and I give credit to their leaders for you know kind of really embracing this problem and not just wishing it away. Um, but you know, I think it's not happening as broadly enough as as the impatient side of me would want. Oh, um, and you and I share that, Mark. Yeah. Because it's it's definitely not you know I'm one of those people that feel like okay if I build a logical argument for for just about anything a very objective argument for something where I'm able to provide facts and things like that and I kind of know you're you're kind of similar in that respect Mark um, then I I I kind of feel to myself that I should be able to snap my fingers and that should be able to happen but what I what I've learned through doing this difficult work sometimes is that you know the change doesn't ever happen as quickly as we want we you and i want it to happen overnight mark well and you know the the, the change and and the the improvement in the level of safety and quality can happen quite quickly in in hospitals and so right. part of my impatience comes from seeing that it's been demonstrated and it might take 20 years or a generation to change in industry, it doesn't take 20 years to dramatically uh, reduce risk and harm um, in, in a particular hospital. So um, the encouraging side is that more if more hospital leaders get to it, um, we, we can see great things happening, whether they're, you know, a small community hospital or like you said, any large hospital. I, I, don't, I don't mean to single them out, but if you know, if you look at um, the, the, the Josie King story and, mm -hmm. and, and her death and Sorrel King, of, of course, is doing, you know, great work to try to help improve patient safety that that occurred at Johns Hopkins. And, right. you know, um, but, you know, to their credit, they have also been working with her and and others within Johns Hopkins have done great work to um, to demonstrate and promote patient safety and healthcare quality. And, and that's as about as 
you know, top-notch, world-renowned as, as it gets. And so, like you said, it's it, not it's not lack of training. It's not lack of people from the right medical schools. It's not a lack of technology. These are, I think, culture problems, systems problems, management problems. That makes it more fixable. Right. Correct. And, th- and again, Mark, um, that's what keeps me going on a daily basis and in, in, in getting out of bed early in the morning and going down late at night uh, and, and being so passionate about this work is the amount of hope that I have. I'm seeing those changes much like you are with with organizations like Johns Hopkins taking a leadership position by looking at things a little bit differently. That by leadership position I mean, you know, addressing the problems at hand, acknowledging the facts, stepping up to the plate much like Johns Hopkins did the facility where I, I, I lost my beautiful daughter here in Cleveland, Ohio. They stepped up to the plate and, and, and I believe should be commended for taking the very bold action when they asked me to come and be a keynote during National Patient Safety Awareness Week and then to give like three or four uh, very high-profile uh, talks for continuing med- med- uh, medical education credits to their people inviting me in and then promoting it very publicly because this horrible, horrific, unimaginable incident with my daughter Emily occurred at their facility. At least they're taking that first step and they've taken multiple steps afterwards. And maybe that's something for another show, Mark, but um, they've taken multiple steps over these past years since Emily passed away to modify their systems and processes but for them to take that leadership position and actually invite the father of a a a beautiful little girl that was lost due to a tragic uh, preventable medical error at their facility i think that was huge much the same way that johns hopkins invited our friend uh, sorrel uh, king josie's mother into their facility shortly after it happened they're saying to everybody yes this horrible thing happened in our facility, but here, public, look in, in future patients of ours, look what we're, we've done to learn from what had happened. Look what we've done to modify things and ensure that patient safety is our number one focus and the best possible outcomes are our number one focus. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm glad that that's your focus and, and that you're dedicating so much time and energy and, and, and rallying others behind this, this incredibly important mission. Um, as, as we wrap up here, and you know, again, I want to thank you for um, sharing, sharing your story, um, how people can reach you, the, the foundation's website, um, what do you recommend for people to be able to uh, get in touch? Yes, definitely. I would encourage everyone to uh, visit uh, our website, which is uh, www.emilyjerryfoundation.org. And I would also encourage any of our listeners to please feel free to contact me with any of these uh, issues that that you might have uh, first and foremost in your mind. Uh, my email address is chris, C-H-R-I-S, at emilyjerryfoundation.org. And um, uh, finally, uh, you know, uh, anyone can feel free to contact me even directly at area code 440 
289-8662. And uh, I would be very, very happy to speak with you um, and um, work with you. Uh, if, if, if you're involved with healthcare and what have you and feel that uh, Emily's story and uh, the programming of the Emily Jerry Foundation is in line with your efforts there at your facility. Uh, I'd be very interested in uh, not only working with your facility uh, in the important area of patient safety, but also, you know, coming and speaking uh, possibly to your uh, caregivers and to your staff to help inspire them uh, to continue with their efforts. Well, and I, I hope listeners who are in the position to be able to um, you know, consider that, I hope people will, will do that or tell their hospital administrators or their professional organizations that they're a part of um, to, to have you come and, and, and dialogue with them and, and be part of the discussion. There's so many people out there um, you know, trying, working really hard. Their hearts are in the right places. Um, I, I think we can equip them. You're equipping them. Um, with with what they need to really uh, protect patients. And uh, I want to thank you for that, Chris. And and thank you for being a guest um, here on the podcast. Thank you very much for having me, Mark. I really appreciate the opportunity and uh, also the continued support you've given. I'm very happy to. Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening. This has been the Lean Blog Podcast. For lean news and commentary updated daily, visit www.leanblog.org. If you have any questions or comments about this podcast, email mark at leanpodcast at gmail.com.